Hello and welcome to Team West Covina, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend podcast. I'm your host Paisley, and today is Sunday, May 13th, 2018. This is episode 5 of the podcast, and we're discussing the episode I Hope Josh Comes to My Party, season 1, episode 3. This episode aired on October 26th, 2015. It was written by Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna, and directed by Tamara Davis. The IMBD synopsis says, in an attempt to get closer to Josh, Rebecca throws a housewarming party despite her lack of social connections in West Covina and a childhood fear of hosting parties. When Paula finally convinces her, the party turns out to be nothing like they anticipated. I'd just like to issue my usual spoiler warning. We are going to be discussing topics covered in any episode that's aired so far. So let's jump right into our analysis. When the episode begins, there's a feeling kind of naughty instrumental playing when Rebecca tries to clog her own garbage disposal. That's sort of one of those things you catch on the rewatch, but I love how they throw in these, these instrumentals from their songs that kind of fit the moment perfectly. And I gotta say, watching her stuff that chicken down the garbage disposal, I don't have to try that hard to get mine to clog. When Josh comes in, Rebecca makes up a story about how last time she called a repairman, he stole her grandmother's necklace from Krakow. It's kind of a random Jewish reference thrown in. Uh, basically, Krakow is a southern Poland city near the border of the Czech Republic, and it's kind of known for having a preserved medieval core and a Jewish quarter. And it was the seat of the German government during World War II, and during that time, Jews were forced into an area known as the Krakow Ghetto. From there, they were sent to extermination camps like Auschwitz or Nazi concentration camps. Kind of makes me wonder if Rebecca's grandmother experienced any of that brings us back to the song remember how we suffered and are they just talking about the general jewish cultural experience or is this something that actually happened to members of rebecca's family i wonder if we'll find out in season four meanwhile rebecca tells josh that she's on the hunt for cute single guys and immediately after that when white josh takes off his shirt to reveal great abs she says hey buddy if you're gonna sweat in here could you put down a towel exactly what you'd expect from a girl who's supposedly on the hunt for cute single guys. And then five minutes later, she's going, put on a shirt because no one wants to see that. At this point, I don't think Rebecca knows that Josh, what Josh is gay, um, but yet she's showing absolutely no interest in a guy that would typically be seen as a catch. I gotta admit, I totally related to this. A lot of fans get really excited about the scene with fit hot guys have problems too in season three. And while it's totally understandable, I was completely neutral. Uh, I can completely recognize that they're all very objectively attractive, but it's not really possible for me to get excited about something physical like that unless I have that strong emotional connection with a person. So I can only wish that I responded to people in that way. It would make life so much easier in, in some ways anyway. So while Rebecca's motivation is stemming from a slightly different place, I could relate to a lot of her feelings in season one. When I watched this episode the first time, I thought Rebecca was making up Weekend Tuesday 2 to explain why she wasn't working, but later we see Daryl reference it, so it's totally a real thing. She does call into work sick though. Daryl doesn't give them the day off for Weekend Tuesday, he just decorates and serves food and drink. 
We also learn a little bit more about White Josh's character in this episode. And I find White Josh really interesting. He's got sort of a helper or advice giver mentality, and he's definitely a fixer. We see this throughout the series, but here he's instructing Rebecca on what not to put in her garbage disposal. Uh, sometimes he, he gives unsolicited advice as well. Um, you, you see him kind of throughout the, the series provide recommendations for how to get fit and healthy while working as a fitness instructor, personal coach. Uh, he actually does that for a living. And I do think that White Josh means well, and he does often have good advice, but he can be tactless sometimes, or he might overstep his boundaries. He definitely likes being right, and sometimes that trumps being sensitive about it. Later on, we see that Josh Chan doesn't want to confide in him because he thinks white Josh will automatically be judgy. Nevertheless, I'm always a little surprised that Rebecca doesn't try to bond with Josh's friends more, other than Greg. I would have expected her to take more of an interest in them because they're important to Josh. He grew up with them, they've known him since childhood. And even at the very least, if she couldn't get on board with them as people, which is what I would ideally hope for, you'd think that she would at least try to befriend them for strategic purposes to get closer to Josh and ingratiate herself into the group. I feel like that's something Paula would probably do. Um, but instead, Rebecca pretty much brushes white Josh off when he's trying to help her. We see Paula come in to check on Rebecca at home, and she's wearing a cherry necklace. It's really common for Paula to have cherry accents in her clothing and accessories. And I actually got really excited about this because that's specifically a signature of my best friend Daisy's too. Daisy, who reminds me of Paula, she always had cherry jewelry, cherry shirts. Even her email address referenced cherries. So I, I just... I'm always marveling about how much she and Paula have in common. It reminds me of how good our friendship was while Daisy was still alive. And that Cherry's reference was, it really stood out to me as something that I always associate with Daisy whenever I see Cherry's anywhere. Paula references period sex as early as episode three without actually calling it that. She talks about how she period stained Roberta Janitelli's settee at a party and then hooked up with Bobby Henderson in 1987. Please let us see Paula flashbacks at some point. I would love to see, you know, how we see young Rebecca. I would love to see young Paula and what she was like prior to meeting Scott and all of that. We got a taste of it sort of in the Getting Over Jeff episode in season three. And that was really helpful, and I, I think it did um, tell us a lot about her character. But I'd love to see actual flashbacks as well. I think that would be a lot of fun. I love when shows like Friends did that, and you'd go back to their high school years and you know check in on the Friends characters at that time in their lives. And those are always some of the best episodes. So I think Paula has a, probably a pretty interesting past. And while she's settled down now as a mom and you know she's married, I have a feeling that, that Paula definitely had a lot of fun as a younger person and still tries to get back to those hijinks when she can. When we see the flashback with Rebecca's parents when she was young, uh, Silas is played by a different actor than the present Silas in season two. In episode three, he's played by Jay uh, Huggerly, hope I'm saying that right, and only credited as young Rebecca's father. 
He becomes an integral part to the present-day plot in season two, and present-day Silas is played by John Allen Nelson. It It's also a little jarring when they change actors playing a character, although luckily enough this was a flashback, so you can kind of get away with it in a flashback where you've got young Silas and then present-day Silas. But I haven't really heard much on why they changed up, if they just couldn't get the original actor back, or if they were trying to cast specifically more for a larger part in season two. If anybody has any information about that, please send it in. I'd love to know more. We know Rebecca's dad was cheating when she was a kid. Her mom references that whore he's seeing. The one he appears to have chosen over them in young Rebecca's eyes. On some level, she seems to decide that she's going to be the girl a guy chooses over his current partner because she subconsciously believes that would help resolve some of the abandonment issues that her father sparked in her when she was a kid. She actively sees him choose this other woman over both herself and her mom. So it kind of makes sense that she does end up in these situations where she's the other woman. When Rebecca's talking to Paula about her dad walking out during her childhood party, she says, it's the root of all my party fears. Actually, it's the root of all my fears, period. She watched her dad choose to leave both of them, abandoning her on her birthday while she was having a party. While neither parental figure is inspired by Rachel Bloom's parents, and I really want to stress that because she does, um, she did tell a really interesting parallel story to this on a podcast. Rachel Bloom talked about how when she was a child, she was swimming with a female friend, and Rachel's parents were there, but in a particularly bad argument. They were so distracted that the female friend had to go over, interrupt them, and say, um, excuse me, but I think your daughter is drowning. So there's this funny metaphorical overtone to how Rebecca feels here that Rachel could have drawn on from her personal experiences. Young Rebecca metaphorically feels like she's helpless and drowning here, but her parents are focused on their argument. Again, this is all speculation on my part, but I did kind of connect the two when I heard that story on the podcast. We get our first song, Paula Sings Face Your Fears, which is one of my favorites. And we know from the first episode in the pilot, uh, Paula always wished that she could be braver. So she's kind of projecting that onto Rebecca here and living vicariously through her. She wants Rebecca to face her fears and live life in a way that Paula didn't always feel brave enough to do. Rebecca and Paula are in the same outfits as the previous scene when they're at Whitefeather and Associates. So apparently they went back to work in the afternoon. It kind of doesn't make sense that Rebecca turned up after she told Daryl her uterus exploded. When we first meet Scott, Scott Proctor, Paula's husband, He's obsessed with barbershop, and he isn't paying attention to Paula. Ironically, since often the problem is that she's not paying enough attention to him. I think they do a really good job of kind of showing that the problems in their marriage are coming from both of them a little bit, and sometimes both of them at different times. And when you're in a long marriage like that, it's easy to get distracted by other stuff or get busier or wrapped up and, you know, maybe even get a little bored with the person you're with or take them for granted. So I, I find their relationship really realistic and it's a good, it's good to see a different kind of relationship in the show. And Paula's at a very different point than Rebecca in, in some ways. And yet she also, you know, kind of wishes she could go back and do it all over and, and play Rebecca's role in a sense too. We see Paula interacting with her children here. 
And she says that Tommy's in the highest percentiles of kids with ADHD, OCD, SAD, panic disorder, and restless leg syndrome. Later, Paula says to the principal, he's been diagnosed with so many things. It, it's sort of glossed over, but I think it's really interesting that Tommy actually has many of the same things that Rebecca has. We know she was also diagnosed with OCD, SAD, and panic disorder. And while I don't think anybody's actually said that she had ADHD, I can see her patterning similar, similar behavior to that, unable to concentrate or pay attention when she's manic or solely focused on one thing. We think of Tommy and Brendan as bad kids who get into trouble, but Tommy's actually dealing with quite a lot from the sounds of it. We don't really see him exhibit symptoms of OCD or SAD though, so it's hard to reconcile how he's similar to Rebecca, but apparently he, he must be in, in some ways. Like Paula exacerbates Rebecca's issues unknowingly because she isn't aware that Bex has borderline, Paula also exacerbates Tommy's by telling him to face his fears, so he steals the test. When Paula's talking to Tommy, she's telling him to face his fears and run with scissors, and Brendan says, that's bad advice, Mom, while sharpening his katana at the kitchen table. <laughs> so you can definitely see that there's a little bit of dysfunction there with the kids and that Paula's trying so hard to prove herself as a good mother, and even her kids are telling her that she doesn't give good advice, so that just kind of makes her want to prove herself more, both with Rebecca and with Tommy's situation. When Rebecca is showing Paula the house party flyer, we learn that her address on the show is 101 South Sunset Ave, West Covina. It's definitely a fake address. Uh, I've been to her house, <laughs> and that's not the real street, uh, but it's on the housewarming flyer, so I guess that is, that is canon for the show. We also see Paula's mug for uh, almost the first time, I think. The one that says, behind every good lawyer, there's a great paralegal, which I think is so perfect for Paula. And then we get our second song, I Have Friends, which we'll discuss more during music notes, but uh, it asks the question, you know, how often do we feel like this or still feel like this in terms of having friends and losing friends? It can be really challenging to make friends as an adult. And that's a topic I'd like to get into more later. When Rebecca's talking to Greg at home base and trying to invite him to her party, uh, he actually tells her, you kissed a girl and she didn't like it, which is a callback to the Katy Perry song that they were referencing so much in episode two. And it kind of makes me wonder, did Valencia protest even more defensively than someone else would have when Rebecca tried to kiss her because she was capable of being attracted to girls? Even if Valencia wasn't attracted to Rebecca specifically, it still made her look down the barrel of that possibility head on. And knowing what we know now about Valencia, it kind of makes those moments all the more interesting. In the next scene, we discover that the outside of Rebecca's front door in this episode looks nothing like the actual house in West Covina. Again, I'm only noticing that because I was there. Um, and it's not something that took me out of the episode. It's not something I noticed when I watched it the first time. So I don't really think it's an issue, but it, it is kind of fun to look at. So for the back of Rebecca's house, um, they used the real one in the pilot and then crafted a set that looks very similar. But the front of the house in the show is tan instead of blue and clearly a different kind of building. They did get the numbers right though. Heather's address number says 102 and Rebecca's is 101, so it matches the address on the flyer. 
So this is the episode where we meet Heather Davis for the first time, and she's super upfront about why she's coming to the party. She just wants to watch Rebecca because she's taking abnormal psych and sees her as a case study. I often see parallels between Heather and White Josh, at least at certain points in the series. They're both very blunt and good at giving advice, but a bit judgmental, although I would say probably why Joe is more judgmental than Heather. Both of them seem pretty confident, even if they don't have everything about their lives figured out. At this point, both Heather and White Josh are coasting, content, and kind of comfortable with what they're doing without actually taking steps to advance. Heather is taking a lot of classes but doesn't graduate. Waijo works as a fitness instructor, and as we learn later, he continues to develop his protein bars, but he doesn't actually launch them until Daryl comes along. Heather doesn't venture out into the adult world until her college forces her to graduate. Yet, they're both intelligent people, um, and they both have good advice, but their delivery is something they could work on a little bit better. Next, we see Paula meeting Tommy's principal at school, and she actually says to him, we moved to this crap town because of the schools. And that kind of makes me wonder how and when did she first meet Scott? We know that Paula is originally from Buffalo, New York, but we don't know where she and Scott moved from when they relocated to West Covina. We don't know if Scott is from Buffalo. I get the impression that he's not and that she might have met him in California. Simply because when she goes home to her dad, you know, Scott isn't really following her to visit with his family. It sort of seems like that was a place Paula lived solo, but maybe maybe that'll become clearer in season four. While Rebecca is decorating for her party, we kind of see her poor, sad, minimalist apartment with awkward holiday decorations. There's a big fish on the wall, which we see throughout the episodes, and I think it's kind of a good metaphor. Rebecca's literally a big fish in a small pond, one in West Covina. In New York, she was successful and doing well, but there was a lot of competition. People like Audra on her tail. She could never really take a break or relax because of the cutthroat atmosphere. She literally never took a sick day. In West Covina, Rebecca stands out. She's initially seen as the smart, sophisticated person from the big city who can take on cases with gumption. There's a similar big fish parallel when it comes to Josh Chan. Josh moving to New York was kind of like Josh becoming a priest. In both cases, he was running away from his problems. He probably felt like he couldn't break up with Valencia because they'd been together so long and they had plans. It seemed like when he moved to New York, he needed some space to breathe and be free without judgment. So rather than break up with Valencia, he ran away, just like he later did with Rebecca. But when Josh quote-unquote fails in New York and probably feels pretty alone, he feels more like coming back to safety, comfort, and people who he believes adore him. Josh sees himself as the center of his friend group, and Valencia is always keen to advance the relationship. In New York, Josh would have gotten lost in the shuffle. He wouldn't have been able to hold his own. For sure, Josh would rather be a big fish in a small pond like West Covina. Plus, he was always proud of his city and genuinely loved it, in contrast to Greg. But are Josh and Greg really that different on this point? Josh loves West Covina in part because he believes he can thrive there and be seen as a charming, desirable guy, whereas 
Greg feels negatively defined by having West Covina as his hometown. And he can't wait to remake himself and claim his new and improved identity by living in a quote-unquote better city with more opportunities. But for both guys, whether or not they embrace their hometown is heavily tied up in how they define their own identities. Is it possible that the more comfortable you become with your identity, the more comfortable you become with your hometown? Gabrielle Ruiz, who plays Valencia, has discussed this sort of thing on social media, how she initially distanced herself from being Texan or having to go to college in Oklahoma because she didn't get accepted by places like Juilliard. But after more life experience and successes, she says she's more apt to embrace the quirky, unique parts of being Texan. And she recognizes the positive impact going to school in Oklahoma had on her career. I hope I got the details of that right. That's the general idea in any case. So back in the episode, we see the Mrs. Hernandez character blowing off Rebecca, even this early on in episode three. We find out she didn't go to Rebecca's party because she was doing parkour. Rebecca says, when Josh walks in here, he's going to walk out just like my dad did. In her imagination, Josh is even wearing the same coat as her dad. That feeling of rejection is very tied up with both important men in her life. At the party, when it's first starting and Rebecca's feeling really awkward and she thinks, you know, she's only got a few people there that are not exactly the life of the party, it really does a good job of portraying how you can be in a group of people and feel more alone than ever. It can make you feel even lonelier because you're not connecting with any of them and you can't force it. And I definitely think that's what Rebecca feels and she knows she can't pretend otherwise in front of Josh. When Josh finally gets there, um, she she really just kind of panics. She starts um, randomly lying about being a smoker, of all things. She tells him she has to go get cigarettes and asks him if he wants to come walk around the block with her. Just totally random things to say where that's going to come back and bite you. Like, you can't just tell someone you're a smoker and, you know, keep that facade up. It, it, it's just very strange that she would even want to say that if she's not. And... She's not the best at lying on her feet, that's for sure. But Josh makes her feel better. And I have to say, this is um, one of those moments, this is probably one of the first moments in the series on first watch where I actually really liked Josh. And I could see what Rebecca saw in him. And he really seemed like, at least in this aspect, he was being a good guy and making her feel more comfortable with only having a few people come to her party. He says, you just moved into town, you banana. Yes, he totally calls her a banana. Of course you don't have a million friends. You know, it'd be weird if you did. If there had been a ton of people here, it would seem like you just invited random people you didn't know. You have a lot of cool stuff going on in your life. Great job, sweet apartment, plus you're like a kick-ass career gal. You just moved into town, you threw a big party. You're fearless. This is definitely one of my favorite Josh moments. I remember Cheetah my Josh Jan, saying something really similar to me years ago when we were just friends, but he was starting to like me that way. He talked about how I moved to another state for a good job, had several groups of friends, was involved in a lot of different interests that I really cared about. He was seeing me at my prime when I was on top of the world and had everything going for me. But life happens to you sometimes. Forces outside of your control can smash a gaping hole into your world. And that takes time to repair and build back up again. We know Rebecca gets to that place too in season three, 
although admittedly she caused some of it too. But here, Josh introduces her to other people from West Covina and really makes her feel welcome. We also hear Josh call Daryl Mr. Tallman, and he has grocery clerk with half an eyelid put on shades for their Instagram photo. There's this great moment with Heather on the couch talking to Paula and Tommy, and she says, being good at school means nothing. See her? She went to Harvard, and she's a mess. Dude, I was horrible at school, but that's because instead of reading their stupid books, I was busy reading everything Salinger ever wrote. Tommy says, and you're successful and rich now, right? And Heather says, not at all, but I'm cool. And that's what really matters. So my question here is, is this contradictory to Heather's later development, where she takes every college class available? I mean, she does seem like she'd be lazy and glide by in school without really studying, in a sense, because that tends to filter into a lot of her personality at first. Yet, she's someone who would be bright enough to do decently and pass classes and pick up on the information that she found interesting. I don't know how developed they had Heather's character at this point, if they just saw her as a, as a side character, or if they knew that going to college and staying in college was going to be part of her arc. I'd be kind of curious what they have to say about Heather here, because when you rewatch the episode, it does kind of make you question it. I mean, she wouldn't have been a total nerd, probably. She probably only would have really put effort into the classes that she found really interesting. But it is kind of funny to hear her say being good at school means nothing. She is a realist, so I think that, you know, figuring out how that's going to work in the real world and, and what does and doesn't matter from school is something that Heather would probably be interested in. But it's surprising that she sees being in school as a safety blanket. And very early on, she's defining herself as a student. I'm a student. That's what I am. I'm just a student. Uh, so... Hopefully we can continue to explore Heather's relationship to, to school and academics and work in the real world as we go on in the podcast episodes. Next, we get the third song. There are actually three songs in this episode, and it's a boy band made up of four Joshes. So this song made me laugh the first time I saw it. Every time after, it made me cry, <laughs> especially when Rebecca's younger self joins and hugs her. And then I end up laughing again through my tears. Rebecca wants Josh to save her. Going through the nightmare years, having saved myself my whole life, I understand because I'm exhausted from doing everything myself. Rebecca might have never gotten to that point where she was healthy and comfortable in her own skin, but I am and I, I have been for most of my life actually. It's just hard when the people I cared about don't treat me like I'm valued. And the idea of having someone come in after all of that, you know, can be pretty appealing. And with demisexuality and gray sexuality, you can't just move on to someone else because often there isn't even an option for years. All the same, I've never really had trouble getting over people throughout most of my life. It's just that there often isn't anyone new that I'm interested in, so I end up feeling sort of stagnant in that area. It, I think it's easy to get burned out too. You can be a very independent person for you know, the majority of your life or even all of your life and be fine with that and, and glad that that's part of your personality. But sometimes if there's really no balance, if it's really imbalanced and you're always kind of doing everything for yourself and you don't have someone who is um, going to say, oh, you know, oh, you, you had a really bad day here. Let me make dinner. or Hey, let me sit down and we can talk about it. If you don't have that, 
on a regular basis, and this goes on for years, there is something appealing to, hey, this person is going to come in and they're actually going to help improve my life. Not necessarily do everything for me or, or rescue me from every possible situation, but being able to like sit down and put your feet up and take the load off even a little bit, it would just create a lot more balance in life. And I think that's a hard thing to say because society is really into, you know, establishing the independent woman to the point that it can be to the woman's detriment at times. And the key word here is balance, in my opinion. You know, you really probably are stunting yourself if you don't necessarily have those elements of independence and ability to take care of yourself or be self-sufficient. And those are really good things to develop and it can help with confidence and all kinds of other things. But at the same time, you will likely burn out if you're always doing everything without help or without that kind of emotional support. So in my opinion, it gets to that point when something about your life is imbalanced. And ironically, I actually know several people whose sadness was turned into happiness and their lives improved so much once they had a good boyfriend. Nobody wants to admit that can happen, uh, especially not in today's society, but it can. It can also fail miserably and not help at all. It really depends on the person and their circumstances. From my experiences, I've seen like, for example, my sister grew so much partnered to her husband. She became a lot more adaptable and coped with having to relocate every few years due to his job, which is something I never anticipated her being able to cope with. She was very much a homebody and lived in a small town and on her own, she never would have like moved cities every few years, but she became an adult after she partnered with him. Whereas she likely would have been much more stunted and reclusive without him. And I think she'd agree with that assessment, actually. Um, He brought her outside of her shell, and it's really been a positive experience for her. And it has developed her as an individual as well as within the relationship. So, you know, I don't want to totally neglect talking about that because... In postmodern society, the big thing is about women standing on their own two feet and, you know, learning how to be alone and learning not to need a guy. And and I do almost want to address that as becoming a little bit of a trope. Um, it can be so positive and it can be really good to have that as part of your life. But a lot of people do really want a relationship at some point, even if it's not going to be their entire lives. And a lot of people have growing from from being in relationships the tricky thing for rebecca is that she has actual mental health issues that stem from childhood and biology so she actually does have stuff about herself that she has to work out being alone for a period of time in the right way would be good for rebecca that being said a close friend of mine also has some mental health issues and having a good boyfriend who eventually became her husband also helped her grow and improved her life tremendously. She's actually a better person now than before. She's more open-minded and her husband helps her reflect on her life and think of it from a different perspective. And for Rebecca, the thing is getting a boyfriend she actually loves has not been an easy road for her. I wonder what it would have been like if it had been easier, if she and Josh became a couple without drama. Part of the reason Rebecca pulls all the antics she does is because it's ridiculously hard for her to get a boyfriend that she cares about. She could get guys in general, but she's never 
been able to successfully have a committed boyfriend that she truly loved and wanted on an emotional level. So I completely understand that part of it. I think having periods of both, periods of being alone, as well as periods of, of learning how to be in a good, healthy relationship, that that's probably key for anybody who wants a relationship at all. And not everybody does. It's rare, but there are people who just you know aren't interested in having relationships at all um, and might focus on friendships or you know sibling bonds or other types of relationships that aren't romantic. But in Rebecca's case, she really does want that romantic relationship at some point in her life. And if she just spent the rest of her life alone, while it would possibly help prevent suicidal thoughts, it would also leave her in a state of development that isn't as far as she could potentially go as a person. Because there's this part of her that wants to learn how to be in a healthy relationship and hiding from that goal is really only part of the journey. At the party, Rebecca notices that Josh gets a text from Valencia and that kind of throws everything back to the real world after the song is over, A Boy Band of Four Joshes, and Rebecca just gets this sinking feeling in her stomach. The background music is, everything is a-okay, and Rebecca asks, is everything okay? And Josh says, yeah, I can get back to them later. He specifically says them and not her, and doesn't specify that it's Valencia. Little bit shady here, but kind of good news for Rebecca, too. Paula, at the party, in her fur coat, boops Rebecca with a magic wand like a fairy godmother. She transformed Rebecca's party for one night, like a modern-day Cinderella at the ball. But Rebecca knows the clock is ticking and Valencia's back in town. Paula says, you are a brave little cookie. I think this is the first cookie reference? Later in season three, Paula tells us about the first time she calls Rebecca cookie, although I believe the actual moment was off screen. And Josh says to Rebecca, when she brings up Valencia's text, he says, I shouldn't be afraid of my girlfriend, right? And he, he genuinely is, he's afraid of her reaction, and, and that's never a good sign. I mean, we, I, I've talked about how that happened with Cheetah and Catnip as well in, in my life, in my situations. And, you know, Cheetah was definitely, like, actually afraid of Catnip's reaction in so many cases. And it just, it made it hard for him to be honest with her or to actually address issues because he was so afraid of how she would react and that it would get really out of control. As Josh leaves the party here, he hugs Rebecca, which she wasn't totally expecting, and she smells him, kind of like she smelled Valencia in episode two. And Greg is sitting on the stairs watching this, and he says, you know, I get it now, how you feel about Josh. I saw it in your face. It was weird and sad and also kind of beautiful in a pure and unironic way. This is what I think Rebecca feels in season one, that it's not just about her and her happiness, even though that's obviously a very real component. I differ with the showrunners on this to some extent. Saying Josh is irrelevant is hugely important to Rebecca's character development in season three. And while I was absolutely cheering for her, in some ways what I wish she would have said is Josh is irrelevant now. When I watched Rebecca in season one, my interpretation is that she actually feels something for Josh as a person. Yes, for what he represents, but 
Also, Rebecca lights up when she sees him. She wants to confide in him, has history with him. It's okay for Josh to be irrelevant midway through season three. That's a healthy step. But to say he was always irrelevant cheapens the feelings that Rebecca had for him in the first place. And I think he feels that too when he hears her say it outside her door. He hears Rebecca say that he's irrelevant. It's not about him. It was never about him. When it comes to having borderline personality disorder, however, there's more of a chance that the person in question might not be as relevant, however. From what I've read in the literature, it would be common for someone with BPD to project how they see the person onto the person themselves. Therefore, it's completely fair for the showrunners to have Rebecca come to this realization. But it's pretty jarring for the romantic partner of someone with BPD to hear. It kind of makes them feel reduced to not a person in their former partner's eyes. Likewise, it tells a very different story than it might for a main character who doesn't have BPD. That character might actually love the person in question and not merely be projecting. I think this is where I drew the line in relating to Rebecca. I don't have borderline, and while I related to some of her feelings, circumstances, and a little bit of her behavior, I had real feelings for my Josh Chan. And hearing her say that it was never about him was admittedly a bit jarring. However, someone else in my life I've become aware has maybe does have some borderline traits, although I would never go so far as to diagnose her with it. And when I think about the person she fell for and why, it begins to make a lot more sense why Josh is irrelevant. Greg says to Rebecca, you know, you're really starting to fit in here. That's not a compliment. He saw Rebecca as a big city hotshot lawyer at first, and seeing how well she fits into West Covina is almost disappointing to him. Greg saw himself getting closer to the big city and intellectual world by association, by dating Rebecca, in hopes that she could expand his world a bit. But she does fit in pretty well in West Covina, and maybe isn't the big city stereotype that he was expecting. During the tag at the end of the episode, Rebecca starts telling young Rebecca that when she gets to college, she'll be editor-in-chief of the Law Journal at Harvard. But all young Rebecca wants to hear about is when she'll get those boobs. You can really tell here that Rebecca was influenced by her mom's goals for her, whereas young Rebecca's just voicing what she's focused on in the moment. Let's take a little break here to talk about Patreon. I've decided to basically close down the Podbean crowdfunding and just focus on one. I'm going to keep my Patreon up for the podcast. And I kind of revised the tiers a little bit and gave them crazy ex-girlfriend names. So Love Kernels is the basic $1 per creation tier. You get a shout out on the podcast and will be listed in the I'm a Good Person patron list on social media if you donate a dollar or more. Channy Bears is the $5 tier. In addition to everything from the $1 tier, you also gain access to the Team West Covina Patrons Only Facebook group, where you can participate in discussions, be part of a support group, and make new friends. Pretzel Bunch is the $10 tier, our highest tier at the moment. In addition to everything above, you also gain early access to podcast episodes, receiving them before the general public. I also plan to add more rewards as we gain patrons and as I have time to roll out more ideas. I set up some goals for the podcast that we can gradually work towards. 
Our current goal is $20 per creation. If we can maintain that for six months, it will cover the costs of podcast hosting all episodes for a year. Our $50 goal, maintained for six months, would cover the cost of better equipment and break even on the startup costs. Having better equipment would mean less editing time, allowing me to release podcasts sooner and more often. I've started that a little bit. Actually, you're hearing this podcast on a new microphone for the first time. And while I I still need equipment that would let me podcast with more than one person, I don't have any of that yet. I had so many pops and problems recording the last episode, and it it does take a lot more editing time if I have to clean up the noise. So um, I'm giving it a shot. I hope I can kind of pay myself back um, once we build a Patreon. But I am trying out a new microphone, and I'm going to kind of try to figure out how that works and how how to record best and we'll see how it goes so if you like the sound of the new episode and are able to donate i'd I'd really appreciate it i'm trying to make this better as we go along and now that i'm sure i'm committed to podcasting i felt ready to kind of start dipping my toe into purchasing a little bit better equipment then we have some pie in the sky hail mary goals because why not if we reach $100 by autumn, I will be hosting a video chat after every season four episode for live discussion. These will be open to every patron regardless of tier so we can talk face to face in real time all throughout season four. And I may at some point, or at least for some episodes, bring in people who aren't patrons too. I, I'll have to just see how it goes and where we're at. Um, but at least for some of them, I'll, you know, I'll see if I can bring in everybody, you know, maybe for the the most special episodes or, um, you know, like the finale or, um, you know, I'll I'll try to find a way that I can include people as much as I can while also keeping this as part of the patron reward system. So we'll try to find a balance on that, but I would be really happy to discuss episodes with you guys in video chat format and get to know each other better in a more personal way. And while it's a lot of fun to go on Twitter and Reddit and all those places to discuss right after the episode is over, when it's a brand new one, I think it it would add a dimension to be able to kind of come online and and have us all video chat together too. So here's hoping we can kind of work towards that. We have a little time. And my largest pie in the sky goal is $250. If we reach that, it would be enough for me to create a library of special topic bonus episodes available to top tier patrons so that as soon as they join, they'd have access to a variety of extra episodes straight off the bat. Some more personal in nature, some on topics of general interest. Examples of potential topics include things like supernatural and paranormal experiences, spirituality and skepticism, weird quirky stuff like the pros and cons of Santa Claus, how nerd geek culture has changed over the years, topics like living alone versus living with housemates, how to build a career, examining different life philosophies, different travel topics like travel as ritual, traveling solo, how to meet new people while traveling, as well as travel stories. I'd like to do episodes on different types of sexuality and what it looks like in practice for it to be a fluid spectrum, whether that's demisexuality, gray sexuality, which you guys know is close to my heart, as well as other kinds of asexuality, bisexuality, transgender experiences, etc. As a patron, you'd be able to suggest topics for the bonus podcast as well as Team West Covina. So that's something I'm kind of floating around. It would be great to be able to give patrons more podcast episodes so that they can, when they join, they can come in and and listen to a whole bunch of them at once. So if we can reach that goal, I would be able to set some time aside and start recording um, bonus episodes. 
So back to the little snippet sections of the podcast, starting with who done it, which is how many times Rebecca initiates plans and how many times Paula instigates. In this episode, Rebecca clogs her own garbage disposal to have a reason to call Josh over to help. That's one for Rebecca initiating. And then Paula suggests that Rebecca throw a party so she can see Josh because Valencia barred him from seeing her alone. And then Rebecca's about to give up on the party because hardly anyone came and she thinks Josh will see her as a loser. But Paula says she'll be back in 19 minutes with a ton of guests. So Rebecca agrees to keep the party going. So in this episode, it was Rebecca initializing once and Paula initializing twice. So our total, our running total, is Rebecca seven and Paula's at five. So they're starting to, uh, to even up a little bit. I also like to look at how much better Paula's plans are than Rebecca's. Bex is capable of coming up with winning plans sometimes, but it's more common for her to come up with bad ones, whereas Paula's often actually work. In our Ring of Fire segment, we discuss fire references in each episode, kind of leading up to discovering that Rebecca actually set Robert's house on fire. And this is the king of episodes with fire references. There are so many fire references in this episode. I mean, it was very blatantly obvious. Um, People will have noticed it in this one because there's just a ridiculous amount. So there's a line from Face Your Fears. If you're in a burning building and smoke is everywhere, keep calm, take a deep breath, and stay right there. And Rebecca says, that's not how smoke or fire works. It's also kind of a metaphor for how Paula kept Rebecca in that same mental state for a long time. Even when everything's going wrong with, with uh, their plans for Josh, Paula is always coming up with another one and kind of keeping Rebecca on that track. And the next is the hot, hot, hot housewarming party flyer with a picture of flames drawn below the house, which is so blatant now that we know what we know. And Paula, when talking about the housewarming flyer, says it kind of looks like you're going to light your house on fire, which, of course, Rebecca later does accidentally when burning ex-boyfriend stuff. And we later learn that she set Robert's house on fire after he refused to leave his wife for her when he originally said that he would. Grocery clerk with half an eyelid, um, when he gets to the party, he says, Oh man, I thought the house was literally going to be on fire. When Josh posts the selfie on Instagram, he uses a hashtag of, This house is on fire. And Josh literally says this too. This house was on fire as he's leaving the party. So, I mean, it was very in-your-face fire references all throughout the episode. Our next segment is Suicide Watch, and we do have a couple little tiny references here. Uh, When Paul is singing Face Your Fears, she sings fly out of a window, fly off a building, which is not a direct reference, but it it makes me think of suicide, you know? Um, It just sounds like a, it might bring that image to your mind. And during the song Boy Band of Four Joshes, the Josh's pretend to hang themselves with stethoscopes during the line, all those nightmares in which you tend to die. So that was a pretty good early suicide reference that you see really affects Rebecca's psyche a lot more than you, you know, necessarily think early on. Our booze clues segment looks at 
whether there were signs of Greg's alcoholism early on. And this episode definitely has one. Rebecca says, I thought you already left. And Greg says, I don't leave when there's whiskey left. Rebecca tells him he can keep it and he thanks her. As soon as Greg opens his mouth, it's obvious that he's super drunk. He stumbles when he gets up and Rebecca says she's going to call a ride sharing service for him. So definitely some signs there that he likes whiskey a little too much. In the Nailed It segment, uh, not much to report. It basically was a whole episode without nail polish. We go through the garbage disposal scene, Rebecca and Paula at work, Rebecca and Greg at home base, her party, helping Paula at the principal's office. She didn't wear nail polish throughout the entire episode. It kind of made me wonder, did Rachel start it yet? Rebecca feels very insecure and fearful about hosting a party and facing her fears of abandonment, so it's possible that low feeling puts her firmly in the no nail polish category. She did have black toenail polish on right after the guys left when they finished fixing the garbage disposal, so that kind of fits too in that she's normally wearing black polish when she is up to something. Our music notes segment takes a look at the songs in the episode and discusses what they were parodying or what they were inspired by. We start off with Face Your Fears, and they had a little bit to say about this on the Spotify commentary. I was actually wondering when I watched the episode, where did they get the choir from of the, the kids behind Paula? And it is the South Bay Children's Choir. It's actually Rachel's old choir, and it's the same choir director she had as a kid. So they brought in the, the current version of this choir to sing behind Paula, which I think is great. I was hoping there was you know, an actual choice behind that choir rather than just casting random people. So that was fun to find out. And the choir consists of kids from all across Southern California. There is a girl on camera, the the close-up of her face that we get when she's singing the School of, is Stupid line, that's executive producer Aaron's daughter. The song itself was inspired by Grandmother's Song by Steve Martin, where he's getting more and more insane advice from his grandmother. There are lines in that song like, be oblong and have your knees removed and put a live chicken in your underwear. I put a link to that song in the show notes in case you want to see how Grandmother's song inspired Face Your Fears. It's, it's pretty fun, actually. And when they're talking about this on the Spotify commentary, they tell us that the song they were thinking about using before they wrote Face Your Fears was, you gotta get what you can get when you can get it, which is Paula's life philosophy but it ended up not fitting the storyline. I would love to hear that at some point. That definitely sounds like Paula. You see her Slytherin side come out there and her tenacity and desire for survival. But I, I can also see where it maybe wasn't the right place to put it. And I do love Face Your Fears. I think it was a really brilliant parody of all those inspirational songs or movies that tell you you can beat the odds and if you're just brave enough to face your fears, you'll be rewarded. Of course, it's over-the-top advice in the parody, pointing out how such a perspective can actually be dangerous, not just inspiring. You might face your fears and discover you had every reason to be afraid of them in the first place. You might face your fears and make things worse. The Children Are the Future line seemed reminiscent of Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love of All. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. That song? I remember hearing that um, in in school when I was a kid. 
Uh, and then they've got some stained glass lighting behind the kids, and Paula is sort of at a pulpit on the stairs with the golden light on her head, and the children are like the church choir. She's, she's preaching it. Then we get to I Have Friends, the second song in the episode. And with closed captioning on, ironically, it removes the closed captioning of Mrs. Hernandez, the part that says, I'm Mrs. Hernandez and I'm here to raise the roof. At least on Netflix, mine takes it out. And Rachel on the Spotify commentary says, this song is my soul. It was written by my inner child, which I think is lovely because I it's definitely one that a lot of people relate to. We hear that Michael Hitchcock came up with a lot of the friends mentioned. And Ava Akers as young Rebecca is so well cast. She and Rachel really do look similar here and have the same energy. We only get to see her every so often, but she does a wonderful job as young Rebecca. The third song is a boy band made up of four Joshes. And it started out as sort of a line, um, baby, I can erase all your childhood problems. That was Rachel's original pitch for the song. And this song answers the question, what does Rebecca get from Josh? What makes her like him? And I think we badly needed to hear that because a lot of viewers watching could kind of pick up on, okay, what's with this guy? There's some, there's some red flags here. And this episode really lets us see why Rebecca likes him and why she might fall for someone in his shoes. Rebecca's first major trauma, her dad leaving her during the boy band party and divorcing her mom, left her stuck at that developmental stage when it comes to certain aspects. Adam Schlesinger wrote this song, and I just have to reemphasize how much I love Adam's songwriting. I always have in other projects of his, but really zeroing in on who wrote what as I do these podcast episodes, I want to give a shout out to him. I really do like this song, and it's not everybody's favorite, and I didn't even really listen to boy bands growing up or anything like that. It wasn't really my thing, but this song really made me laugh the first time I saw it. I really think it's brilliant and well-written. It's a parody of Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, other boy bands, and especially 98 Degrees, as they're called Room Temperature in the episode, a parody of the boy band's name. So I don't know if any of you listeners were 98 Degrees fans. I only ever knew like one of their singles from the radio. I don't know much about them. But I was wondering, is each Josh that we see patterned after an actual member from that band? If you know, please write in, because I would love to know if they're actually connected to like specific members. And you can tell they're all meant to be a little different. Everybody's wearing like a slightly different hat or sunglasses or um, their movements are different. I mean, Vinny did a tremendous job here. I wish they were able to utilize him more in songs because he's fantastic at the dancing and portraying each member differently. You can kind of go back and watch it several times because he's so good at individualizing each of them. So our next segment, we'll talk about the themes of the episode. Of course, abandonment issues is a number one theme. Rebecca has this deep-seated fear of her dad leaving. Paula convinces her to throw a party, and then Paula leaves before the party (laughs) for another child, a young boy. That's why she leaves. It really reminded me of Rebecca's dad being at Tucker's seventh birthday party, like they reference in the pilot. Yet, Rebecca's dad ditched her own party as a kid. And so Rebecca's kind of reliving this history over and over again. We know Rebecca's dad was there for this other kid, but not for her. And then Paula, who is such a rah-rah fan of hers, has to leave for her own child, Tommy. 
it's not just about Josh abandoning her, but you, you also see Paula temporarily abandoning her. But she comes back, and she comes back with people. I think that is actually helpful to help heal Rebecca's issues as much as Josh being there. I mean, Rebecca's a lot less conscious of it, but I think Paula returning triumphantly is also a little bit of uh, balm to the wound. Another theme is being cool in this episode. Rebecca's dad, we actually hear him say that she had losers at her party. And then as an adult, we see Rebecca being afraid that Josh will think the same thing. And she connects not being cool enough with being rejected and abandoned, which is very problematic because that can lead to a lot of unintended consequences and self-esteem issues. Rebecca's presenting the party as cool by taking a strategically orchestrated selfie and posting on Instagram. Then we have Heather's discussion with Tommy about how being cool is the most important thing. And then we also see Paula buying into it and actually really liking Heather. And I'm kind of wondering, is, is Heather saying that in an attempt to not care? Because if she did care, it would be too stressful, too much pressure, too adult. She's sort of similar to Greg in this way. Both are smart, both are Ravenclaws, but they're both underachieving at first. They eventually find their way, it just takes them a little longer, and that's okay, it makes sense for our generation. It's a lot easier to be the critic, the armchair critic, like both Greg and Heather are, than to be the content creator and put yourself out there. Greg isn't trying to go back to school, he's working at the bar. He can't fail if he doesn't try. And Heather is in school, but she's not always putting effort into every single class. It sounds like she's just kind of rolling through it and trying to glide by. And she's not trying to go out into the real world and get a job because that might mean failing for her, whereas school is a little bit more of her comfort zone. She knows how to handle it. And both of them kind of eventually have to get to that point where they stop being armchair critics and they actually start putting themselves out there and creating their own lives in the ways that are meaningful to them and risky and maybe a little bit scary, but ultimately fulfilling. And both Greg and Heather go through that journey uh, separately, but there's definitely a parallel between them there. The third theme of the episode is facing your fears, of course, and it's not as black and white as society makes it seem. I was actually always the type to try to be bold and face them so that I didn't regret not going for it. And sometimes that paid off, but it could also backfire badly. For example, in my, my personal experiences, telling Catnip that Cheetah and I had feelings for each other is my prime example of that at this point. You'd think that because they were already broken up and my friend Catnip was already in a very happy relationship with a new boyfriend, it would have been okay. But in retrospect, it caused a ton of unanticipated problems. So I'm definitely reevaluating my take on facing fears and figuring out if there's a way to gauge whether doing it would have a good or a bad outcome. It's not always apparent. Given the information I had, it seemed like it was a very appropriate time to do it. But there were crucial pieces of information I didn't have that would have made me make a different decision. And that can be hard. Sometimes you're facing your fears without all the information and you have to decide whether to just go for it or not. We have very belated poll results from the poll from episode two on the spelling of spiders. And 71% decided it was spiders with an apostrophe at the end. 14% said spiders apostrophe yes. And 15% said it was just spiders with no apostrophe. So the fans have spoken. 
Our new poll question is, what minor friend is your favorite mentioned in the song? Patty, Luan, Jason, girl with mustache, boy with port wine stain, janitor who lives in an RV behind the school, lady who hit your car, friend of friend from law school, grocery clerk with half an eyelid. You know Ben would be like super excited if he won this poll. We also have a couple podcast questions for this episode. I hope Josh comes to my party. First one is, when did you face your fears or neglect to face them, and how did it work out for you? And how would Rebecca be different without Paula ever having entered her life? Feel free to write fanfic about it. That could be thoroughly explored. If you're able to, please rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast, and it helps grow our listener base. You can reach out to the podcast or start discussions on Facebook at facebook.com slash Team West Covina, Twitter at Team West Covina, or Instagram under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. If you don't plan to join us for A Copian's Corner, thanks for listening. So, welcome to A Copian's Corner. This episode's already a little long, and it's going to be a little bit longer. I have a couple different things to share on a personal level when it comes to this episode. One is actually just sort of a recent update that doesn't entirely relate back, but it it does have a lot to do with what goes on in the show in general. Uh, Some of you know that I've recently been seeing a psychologist for grief and trauma, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. But I, I saw her for about six sessions, and the psychologist actually said that I've done everything I can do and that I'm doing everything right. This is actually the second therapist to tell me that. Um, I had one very briefly several years ago um, when the nightmare years first started, and she told me that too, even that early on. And and then, you know, I haven't really been back to one in a long time and really didn't anticipate going, but I'd gotten to a point where I'd done everything I could think of, and I thought maybe an expert would have more suggestions. Apparently not, at least not yet. Uh, I had mentioned this time around that I wanted to try cognitive behavioral therapy techniques since I'd heard such good things, both from Rachel as well as other creators that I look up to. And my current psychologist said that I've actually been doing all of those things naturally, just not in the structured environment of CBT, but the actual things and behaviors I'm already doing. And I kind of got to the point where I was like, gosh, no one seems to be able to help me. If experts can't help, what's my next step? Admittedly, it's very hard to get into a psychologist, at least where I am. And with my insurance, I feel like they're all mostly booked or they're not available at a time that fits into my schedule or they don't take my insurance. I mean, there's a variety of things, but I didn't really get to choose a psychologist. There was really only one in all the places that I called, who could take me. So that's probably part of the issue right there. But at the moment, I we mutually decided that there wasn't really a reason for me to see her anymore. So I'm, I'm not seeing one now. Uh, if I have time later to kind of look into it and find somebody else, I, I'm open to that. But it does take a lot of time and effort. It took me about a month and a half to find this one. So... You know, once I get to a place where I have a little more time, I maybe I'll, I'll give it a shot. But I've been very clear with them that I'm looking for actual techniques because I think that would fit my circumstances better. 
And so at the moment, I'm kind of working out a lot of my grief and trauma through the podcast and watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, as well as the Sokopian's Corner segment specifically, just being able to talk about things and reflect and, and work things out on my own for now. One of the questions I asked you guys in the podcast questions segment was, how would Rebecca be different without Paula? And it kind of made me ask that question, how am I different without Daisy, my best friend who passed away? With Daisy, I had someone I could talk to the way I talk to myself, which is really lucky because not everybody even ever has that. She was someone I could confide in every day if I wanted, but I also didn't have to if I was too busy. She's someone I never had to explain myself to, who never once judged me or my thoughts. Now a lot of those thoughts and venting and reflections are kept inside. I made that mistake of telling Catnip about Cheetah and I having feelings for each other without Daisy to check me. She's someone I would have run it by before doing that, whereas I didn't feel like I had anyone I wanted to tell at the time that it happened. Daisy probably would have asked the right questions, made me think about things with a different perspective, and might have given me pause and gotten me to um, take a step back before actually talking to Catnip. And I'm sure Cheetah would have appreciated that, but without Daisy, things go down differently. It can be hard to make good decisions when you're in such a torturous emotional state. Daisy and I would have taken vacations together, whereas it's not always clear who will go on vacations with me now, and often it's different people and friends each vacation. Daisy and I were each other's chosen defaults for things like that. She always helped me cope with whatever problems or issues I was having in my life, even if they were totally unrelated to us. She still cared just as much as if they were happening to her. I definitely do feel more alone in life without her because, you know, my other friends are good, but they live their lives independently from me, whereas Daisy and I regularly plan things together and live life together, but in a healthy, positive way, not a codependent one. We were both very independent people, yet we had each other as a support system, and that was a really good balance. She was someone that I considered family. And I'm not sure that I have anyone actively in my life like that now, although sometimes that kind of thing develops over time. I feel like Rebecca would have gone in a totally different direction without Paula. She might not have stuck with Josh as long because she may have given up. She wouldn't have thought of all the plans that Paula thought of. She might have embarrassed herself worse, or she might have just felt like it wasn't going to work. She couldn't think of anything else to make it work and then you know she either might have like moved back to new york or she might have stayed in west covina by herself and tried to date other people she might have tried to commit suicide earlier i mean it's really hard to say how that would have gone if paula had not been there as rebecca's support system and also instigator in some cases but i'd love to hear what you guys think about that this episode has such a large theme regards to making friends especially, you know, moving to a new city and making friends and how difficult that is. So that's something else I was thinking about on a personal level in the Ecopians Corner segment. I have a very unique experience when it comes to making friends in that when I was very young, I had trouble making friends and I tended to have imaginary friends as a result of that. And I had one friend that was probably my best imaginary friend. And she stayed with me a very long time. My mom and sister were aware of her. 
she was very prevalent in my life. I had her as long as I can remember, and I would play board games with her. One time I actually, like, when, you know, when you're a little kid and, like, you trace the outline of your body with chalk or on paper, um, I traced the outline and then, like, I colored it in to look like her, and then I tried to put like her back and her front together and then put a tape recorder inside of her (laughs) so she could talk back to me. I mean, it was very low-grade technology at the time. But, I mean, it was really important to me to bring her to life because I felt closer to her than I did to any real casual friends that I might make at school over the years. You know, I would actively interact with her and play with her at recess, and it, it was a very big deal. And we were different from each other. We had some differences, and there was a very specific way that we related to each other. And she had her own likes and interests and ways of approaching the world. She was more outgoing than I was. Um, I had her hair and eye coloring down and what she looked like. And she had certain things like, you know, she, she liked unicorns or there were just like specific aspects of her personality that I would recognize as hers. I remember my mom actually sent me to the school counselor just once because I was in third grade by that point and I still had this imaginary friend. And the counselor had me read the picture book, Jessica by Kevin Hankies, which is basically a picture book about a little girl with imaginary friend. And the funny thing is, in the book, she actually meets a girl at school eventually named Jessica. And that is actually what happened to me in high school. It took until high school, but when I got to high school, I actually met someone who had become part of our friend group. Uh, I did have friends by this point, but I didn't have a best friend exactly. And... I didn't know at the time that this girl was going to be important. Her name in the podcast is Lotus. And Lotus was really pretty, and she almost seemed like she might be a popular girl when I first met her. She was a couple years older. Uh, and at first I was like, oh, I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to trust this girl, or what's up, you know, why is this older girl hanging out with us? But eventually we got to know each other one-on-one, and we wrote some emails to each other and discovered we had a lot in common and could get into really deep, in-depth discussions that it was very rare for me to find anyone I could do that with at the time. And the ironic thing is, she actually, in real life, had the name of my imaginary friend, just like in the book. You know, I had a very specific name for her, and in real life, she had that name. And it was so ironic. She looked just like my imaginary friend, her, her physicality was the same. And even all of that did not make me say straight off the bat, oh, I wonder if, because I kind of had an idea of what she might be like that wasn't really accurate when I got to know her one-on-one. It, it really changed my perception of her and there was a lot more going on under the surface. So once I really got to know her, and we'd become best friends, and we'd been friends for a few months, I realized, oh my gosh, this this is, this is her, this is my imaginary friend, this is this person that I have been waiting for since I can remember. And I always did kind of believe that she would show up in my life at some point. I remember in middle school, before I, I knew her, I, I started to have dreams about my imaginary friend, and I felt like she was getting closer. 
So it did make a ton of sense to me that when I entered high school, I, I, I actually met her. And she remained very, very important in my life. We became and, and stayed best friends. She was my, my first real best friend before Daisy even. This was long before I met Daisy. And she was actually friends with Daisy as well. We were all three kind of really good friends, um, but that was more as adults, whereas I've known Lotus since we were in high school. And eventually, Lotus and I started out as best friends, and eventually we actually got into a relationship, which was a huge surprise to both of us. I had not been interested in any girls at all. I, To my knowledge, I was just interested in guys, and we just happened to get really close as people and became attracted to each other and weren't expecting it. As I've talked about, I, mean, I think it might have been maybe more of a, a one-off experience. I, I really haven't full-fledged fallen for a girl since her. It's really only ever been guys, but we ended up bonding very deeply, and we were both best friends and in a relationship for a while, and our relationship actually lasted 14 years, so it had a huge impact on my life, and she turned out to be hugely important, just like I always thought she would be. And I remember when we moved in together for the first time, I was still in high school. And as I was unpacking, I actually found a Valentine that I had painted for her as my imaginary friend when I was in second grade. And it was addressed to her, it was written to her. And I said, oh my gosh, I think this is for you. And I gave it to her like all these years later and it was just incredible and here we are like unpacking her unicorn collection of figurines which was always this thing that my imaginary friend liked and it it was very much art becoming life and it was a very powerful experience and there are a lot of things connected to that story for example we discovered when we were watching family videos of me as a kid we discovered that we were actually at the same birthday party and had met when I was six and she was eight. And we didn't know it. We didn't really remember who we met at that party. We were too young. But when we were watching this family video and there was a girl on it playing with me and Lotus said, you know Natalie? How do you know Natalie? And I said, oh, well, I went to preschool with her. She didn't go to the rest of school with me, but she did go to preschool with me, and, and she invited me this one year to her birthday party. And Lotus said, well, Natalie lived in my neighborhood. I knew her, too. I went to her birthday party. And she said, but Natalie never had birthday parties. She only had one. Um, it was very uncommon for her to even have them. She just had this one birthday party. And I said, well, I don't remember a lot about that party, but I do remember that they gave out gifts to each person and you kind of like randomly picked them out or something like that and were given a gift. And I guess I got whatever the coolest gift was at the time. And I, I got glow in the dark stars. And for whatever reason, that was like the coolest gift. And all the kids thought I was so lucky. And Lotus said, I remember someone getting glow in the dark stars. And I said, that was me. And we realized that we had actually met as children and had no idea. And here I am pining for this imaginary friend this whole time. And we had actually come into contact. I just had no idea because I'd only met her in a group 
really briefly at a party. I'm not even sure if I learned her name, but it does kind of add that weight to the story, which, you know, made it really special for us. There's a lot more to that, of course, but I did just kind of want to talk about how unusual making friends can be. I do have a tendency of having someone be an imaginary friend first or possibly a particular archetype that sticks around me for years or a fictional character that I or others created, having these things turn up in real life and these people becoming my friends eventually, even though it takes years, and it's sort of a literal manifestation of art becoming life. And I'd love to do a bonus Patreon episode on how that's all worked out in practice, because ironically, this isn't the only story I have of this happening. Uh, This is a pattern in my life, um, even if it takes a long time. And I do start to get the feeling sometimes like right before I meet someone or get a feeling that, oh, this particular archetype is coming. And I don't know why I I can't explain it, but it's always helped me kind of find those deeper friendships as I start to recognize um, real people who are coming in who fit the character in my mind. And I'd just like to add, too, that it's not just projecting in most cases. It's, you know, somebody coming in who actually is fully formed that person. And we do interact the way I always imagined we would. And so in general, that's been a pretty positive experience for me. They don't always last. Some are more important than others. But they all had, you know, an impact on me in my life or came in at the right time. So... I'd love to do an episode on that for patrons at some point. I'd also like to do a top tier patron episode on the whole topic of making friends, losing friends, trying to make friends as an adult, making friends online or at work and how that makes things different. What it's like when you have to be friends with everybody that's part of your group, even if they're maybe not all people you'd connect with naturally. There's a lot of elements with that that I think we could kind of tease out that people who relate to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend would probably relate to or have experiences with. So that's something I would like to address in bonus episodes at some point. The last thing I wanted to share in Acopian's Corner has to do with parties and relationships and that kind of feeling that Rebecca got with Josh at her party. This experience is actually taken from my journals. I keep a lot of journals. I have like a bookcase full of journals that I started when I was five years old and have continued them the whole time. And so I I would never remember all of this like off the top of my head. I had to pull and kind of look back and remember what it was like during this experience at my friend Tango's birthday party. Lots of code names always. And there was this moment at Tango's birthday party years ago when Cheetah my Josh Chan and I were sitting on the couch and he was sitting as close to me as possible. And I was against the arm of the couch and couldn't move over anymore. And we talked for hours at this party. There was tons of people in all different rooms, but he and I just had this like individual conversation at some point later on in the party. I'd asked him for advice on a game I was playing and he played that video game years ago. But once he knew I was playing, decided to set up a new character and play it all over again so he could show me around the, the world and we could play together. He talked about psychology behind video games draw, as well as their potential for addiction and how sometimes social obligation to your rating group was actually a bigger drive than addiction itself. He had a lot of thoughts on how guys and girls interacted in video games. And our whole conversation, I just thought he was so funny and insightful and our words just flowed really naturally. Cheetah had one arm over mine 
and we both leaned our heads on the back of the couch, turned towards one another, so our faces were only two inches from each other. I remember his dark eyes so close to mine that I felt naked emotionally, like my feelings were more difficult to hide in that position. He'd make a joke, and my expressions felt heightened, as if our interactions were leading up to something. I remember Catnip talking about a scene from a movie where two characters are sitting on a couch, and there's so much sexual tension that they suddenly turn to each other and make out. She, who didn't feel like that towards Cheetah, asked, do people really do that in real life? And after that moment on the couch, I thought, if we'd both been single, we absolutely would have, once we had some privacy. Cheetah and I talked for ages, and were sitting so close that I could feel that spark or energy in the air. Friends came over to say goodbye to us, and he wouldn't even get up. He had them bend down to hug us. He stayed in position with one arm over me, sort of pressing me up against the corner of the couch where there wasn't really any room to go beyond that. I even overheard Tango asking Catnip about us at the party, and when Tango came over to talk to Cheetah and me, she mentioned that she was under strict orders from her girlfriend not to drink anymore that night. Now that I've got a girlfriend, she's always telling me what to do, Tango said. And Cheetah, without missing a beat, went, I know how that is, and unconsciously squeezed my arm spontaneously. When I finally had to break down and tell a friend from our group what was happening to ask advice, it happened to be Tango, and when she found out who it was, that we both had feelings for each other, she actually related this very moment back to me because she still remembered it all these years later and had a moment where she questioned what was going on, which was nothing. We hadn't even confessed feelings to each other at this point. But Tango figured it was our business and maybe we had an arrangement with catnip or something. I can't believe that a random friend could tell just by looking at us when we hadn't even admitted it to each other yet. So that's definitely what... I hope Josh comes to my party made me think of. Uh, I had a similar party experience where even just talking to the person, you could kind of tell that something was there and definitely related to Rebecca on that. It's kind of strange going over this years later because it's not something at the forefront of my mind or anything, but I went back and looked this up in the journal for the episode and I guess I, you know, it's still a good memory to me, even after everything that happened, I, I can still look back at this and, and see this as a, as a good memory. And nothing was broken yet. Everything was still new and fresh and beginning. And there's something comforting about that. So that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.